Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Dig Deep. My name is Stacia Hajibu. Several years ago, there was a story going around about um, a precious young family. There was a mom and a dad, and they had two young toddlers and a, um, a newborn infant. As you can probably imagine, mom and dad were experiencing um, levels of physical exhaustion that made it hard to function during the day. Sleep became even more scarce uh, when they began to witness this new phenomenon with their kids during the night, thunderstorms. Um, it was now thunderstorm season, and so now not only was the newborn baby getting up in the middle of the night, but every time it would thunder and lightning, the toddlers would be coming to jump into bed as well. So as you can imagine, most days were spent trying to come up with creative ways to function without sleep. As the story goes, dad had a trip coming up for work, and he was very nervous that his wife wouldn't get any sleep while he was away. So he sat down with the two kids, the toddlers, and said, listen, if you guys can stay in your own bed um, all week and let mommy get some rest, I'm not above bribing you. And if you guys can stay in your bed for the entire week and let mom get some rest, I might have a surprise for you when I come back from my trip. And so the kids stayed in their bed all week long, and mom was able to get some rest that week. And when they went to go get dad at the airport, mom was schlepping into the airport with the two toddlers and the newborn, and it was the oldest child to see dad first. Before mom knew it, this oldest child was sprinting across the airport to the baggage claim, yelling at the top of his lungs, Daddy, great news! Mommy didn't sleep with anybody while you were away! <laughs> yeah. So. Now, why do I tell you that story? As we continue to learn from Joseph's life today, we are going to be looking at this principle that was at play that day at the baggage claim carousel and also throughout Joseph's life, and it's this. Um, those things that we observe in our world are not always the entire story. The things that we observe in our world are not always the entire story. The proclamations that the travelers at the airport heard that day, they did not have the entire story. And similarly, as we've seen with Joseph all spring, his seemingly random occurrences in his life are not the entire story. There's been more going on than what the eye can see. I think this principle has unfolded well for us throughout our gatherings this spring. This is an idea we can grasp. Clearly, there's been a lot of hardship in Joseph's story, but hardship isn't all of his story. So I'm wondering, can this be true of our lives as well? Is it possible that the things that we're observing in our own lives today are only part of the story? Well, of course, it's possible, and, and some days it even seems logical. But what I'm wondering is, it, um, can, we see, can we choose to see it that way with the hard parts of our story? Like an un, unwelcome diagnosis. Uh, can we believe that we're only seeing part of the story? A fractured relationship. Can we see past hurt and believe that we're only seeing part of the story? It's not, it hasn't fully unfolded yet. A teenage daughter making destructive choices. Can we choose to have the perspective we don't see the entire story? A marriage that doesn't look like what we dreamed. Living with the pervasiveness of chronic pain. A loved one struggling with severe mental health challenges. Tragic, unexpected twist in our journeys that's left us changed forever. Is it possible to lift our gaze and dare to believe that we're in a middle chapter and we don't know the entire story yet? In the hardest parts of our story, in the parts of our stories that leave us feeling scared, 
outraged, feeling anxious, lonely, confused? Are we willing to believe that what we witness isn't the entire story? That's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, that our stories are still playing out. They're not finished. But more importantly, we're going to go one step further and make the case that God is in control of our stories and that we can trust him for the outcome. So let's continue looking at Joseph's story. If you guys remember last week, Jess shared with us the unexpected fulfillment. All, all 11 brothers are bowing down before him, and here's this unexpected fulfillment of this dream that God had given Joseph 20 years prior. Maybe you guys remember that scene right at the end of 43 where all the brothers are sitting around the table. Joseph is dining at his table, and they're, they're enjoying a big meal together, and then they, they end up spending the night, and they're going to be heading out the next day. So that um, back to Canaan to see their father, Jacob. So that's where we're going to pick up today. We're going to be looking in 44 and 45, and there's three major scenes that we're going to just briefly look at. Uh, we're going to continue looking. Joseph is still continuing to test his brothers, and so we're going to look at that testing a little bit. We're going to take a look at the transformation that has taken place in the brothers. And um, we're going to look at one of uh, what I think is probably one of the most beautiful scenes in the entire book of Genesis, which is this climax where Joseph makes himself known to his brothers. So as we move into 44, the testing of the brothers is, uh, continues. Um, <clears throat> do you guys remember in your reading last week where uh, Joseph commanded his steward to take all of the brothers' sacks and fill them as full as they possibly could with food, to put their money back into the sack. And then he did this strange thing. He said, I want you to take this silver cup and I want you to put it in the youngest brother's sack and I want you to make it look, it's a plant, I want you to make it look like he has stolen the cup. Okay. So the steward carries out those orders. In the morning, Joseph says, get up and go. They, they have started traveling out of the city to go back home. And um, Joseph says to the steward, go. And, and apprehend the youngest brother, bring him back. So what is Joseph doing there? What is, what's he doing? He's, he's giving them the food, they're heading back home, but he is trying, he's making a trap and trying to get them to come back. What's he doing? Joseph is testing his brothers to see if they've changed. I'm not sure it's possible to overstate how awful these brothers were. Not, we know 20 years prior to this scene here, uh, he is, he, they hated Joseph so much that they wanted to kill him. We don't have the ability to go back and look at it no, but now, but it would really be worth your time to um, go back and look in Genesis 34 before Joseph's story even started. Uh, these brothers, they had, they had really committed some atrocious, evil um, acts long before um, Joseph ever had his dream. Evil that caused tremendous heartache and embarrassment for their father, Jacob. In, in 3430, Jacob is quoted as saying, you have made me a stench in the nostrils of the people in this land. They're going to destroy me, and they're going to destroy uh, my household. Well, that's pretty significant when you think about who these ten brothers were. They were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, the brothers that God wanted to use to extend the blessing to the entire world, right? He was going to use these guys as um, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. But they had a wicked streak. It included sexual immorality, deception, and even brutal murder, long before Joseph ever had his dream. Jacob had been disappointed by the immorality of his sons, and so it's no wonder 
that they had such a hatred towards Joseph because it was Joseph then, the dearly loved son, that the father turned his attention toward. And so this is how he is going to extend our family through the generations and make us a great nation. So my question is, is it possible that these wicked, evil brothers have changed? What kind of change is Joseph looking for? Pastor Colin Smith, who's with the uh, Gospel Coalition, phrases it this way. Joseph wants to know what he's looking for is, have the brothers changed enough to stop grieving the father and to stop hating the dearly loved son? So let's think about grieving the father. Day in, day out, year after year, decades have passed And these brothers have been working for their father in his fields. They've been tending his fields. Day in and day out, year after year, they they continue to grieve the father by perpetuating this lie that that his dearly loved son is dead. Think about the pretense that that had to involve. If they watched their father year after year, how he was grieving for his dearly loved son, uh, that they never considered telling him, as far as we can tell, he, he might actually still be alive. They watched him for 20 years grieve. Have they changed? Are they still willing to grieve the, uh, the father? And how would Joseph devise a test to see how the brothers felt about the dearly loved son? Did you ever wonder back in chapter 43 when they, were, when they were all eating dinner together? Do you guys remember what it said when this food was being served? So Joseph is sitting at his table, and he's eating his food, and they're going to serve it to all the brothers. They bring the plate out to... Now I'm making this up because this didn't stay like <laughs> the scriptures, but this is how I imagined it happened in my head. They bring a plate out to Judah, and they, it's lovely food. They bring a plate out to Levi. It's a beautiful meal to Simeon, um, to Reuben. And they go around the entire table. Do you remember they had it lined up from age, from oldest all the way to youngest, and they sat in wonder that, that that had happened that way? Do you remember that it said Benjamin received five times, that's right, five times the amount of food? That'd be hard to miss. Like if you have a regular meal, a regular meal, a regular meal, a regular meal, and then someone comes out with five times the amount of food, that would be hard to miss. And Joseph is paying very close attention. How are the brothers going to respond to uh, Benjamin being so highly favored that way? So Joseph wants to know, have they stopped grieving the father and have they stopped hating the dearly loved son? So this brings us back up to just outside the city. The steward's caught up with the brothers, and he accuses them of stealing Joseph's silver cup. And they are so certain, they're just indignant. They're certain that the steward is mistaken. And so they say, there's no way. If any of us have been found with a silver cup, you can kill him. You can kill him. And we'll all return as slaves. And lo and behold, the cup is found in Benjamin's sack. If this were a movie, this is where I would imagine like a a split-screen flashback scene where one side is Joseph saying to the brothers, don't bother coming back to Egypt if you don't have your youngest brother. And then on the other side of the split screen is Jacob and Judah. And Judah saying, come on, we, ha- we can't go back unless we have Benjamin. And Jacob so desperately does not want to allow Benjamin to go for fear that something is going to happen to him. And now here we are. He's been found with the silver cup in his uh, bag. 
here's the moment where everything hinges. Have they changed? Will they grieve the father and hate this dearly loved son? They could easily save themselves. They could hand Benjamin over, return home without him, but it would cause unimaginable heartache and grief to the father. In verse 13, we read, Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. They've indeed changed. The grace of God has done a work in their lives over the last 20 years. Can you imagine Joseph waiting to see who was going to return? He knew somebody was coming back. It was either going to be Benjamin by himself or who? Who was going to return? Would they sell him out, send him back alone, or would they risk everything on Benjamin's behalf and return to the most powerful man in their world with the prospect of severe punishment? I can picture Joseph standing at his window and then on the horizon just seeing dust from the donkeys. All the brothers return together. The brothers return and they fall to the ground before Joseph. Joseph says in 15, verse 15, what deed is this that you've done? Did you not think that I would find out? And right in this moment, we see this gloriously transformed heart of Judah. Judah begs to approach Joseph. He asks if he can just even come into his presence. And then for the next few moments, we watch Judah humbly beg not to have to grieve his father, mentioning the name of the father. In the next few verses, he mentions the name of the father 15 times. And then he humbly intercedes on behalf of Benjamin, offering to give his own life in place of Benjamin's life so that Benjamin can be reunited with his father. With all of these emotions competing in Joseph's mind, I can't help but imagine Joseph is thinking to himself, my, Judah has changed. And he weeps. He clears the room so that it's just him and his brothers, and he weeps uncontrollably. He weeps so hard with groans, so loud that it can be heard out in his community. And then Joseph declares, it's me. I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? And understandably, the brothers are terror-stricken and unable to speak. Speechless. I think, I imagine the scenes that must be flashing through their minds. I'm thinking of that teenage boy. A boy, their youngest brother, that they were in a position to mentor and coach and protect. And instead, uh, I mean, I know that there can be fractures in families, you know. But this was their brother. Like, they were family. They see him coming on the horizon, and they strip him of his clothing, and they throw him in a pit without water to die. But if you guys remember back in 37, 25, what they did next after they threw him in a pit, they sat down to eat. The pit was probably fairly close by, and they sat down to eat. And can you imagine Joseph's cries? You guys, don't, come on. Don't do this. Don't do this evil thing. Judah, Levi, Simeon, what, you know, I, I just can't even imagine. They're sitting there eating, and their, their brother is there in this pit, terrified. I imagine the scene is coming through their head now as their brother is standing as the most powerful man in their world. The memory of the pulling him back up out of the pit only to sell him as a slave. This once hated brother is now their only hope of being saved. The sheer dismay, no wonder they're speechless. And what does Joseph say in that moment? Come near to me. Don't be angry with yourselves and don't be distressed. God has sent me here before you to preserve life. 
And for the rest of the chapter, uh, <laughs> sorry guys, we're captivated by what I think is the most beautiful chapter in all of Genesis. The tears of deep pain finally released. Relief after two decades of not understanding what God's plan is. Gratitude for being reunited with his family. Sadness over seeing his brothers wrought with guilt. Joy witnessing those same brothers embrace repentance. But most of all, weeping, knowing that the thing he longed for most, he was going to be back in the presence of his father. All right, so what can we learn from this? What does God have for us here in 2019 in this incredible story? What difference does this piece of ancient history, what difference could it make in our lives today? I think there are uh, three more times Joseph gives us a clue of how this can help us today. We keep reading verse 7, God sent me before you. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. Verse 9, God made me Lord of all of Egypt. Three more times we hear from Joseph, God is in control of our stories, and we can trust him for the outcome. God is in control of all of our stories, and we can trust him for the outcome. Now, at this point, it, you know, really, for Joseph's story, the bow is getting ready to be wrapped, right? It's a nice, tidy little, we see resolution, we see reconciliation, we see God's redeeming Joseph's pain and suffering. It's right there for us to see. There's, we can see the purpose in Joseph's pain, but what about for us? What if it never comes for us? Some of us have had irreversible tragedy. Everyone has pain. Some have the daily reminder of a constant, pervasive struggle, if this world isn't as it should be. And we might not ever see God's grand purpose in it in this lifetime. So what about us? How are we supposed to move forward? I would never be so bold to say that I have the answer to this. Sometimes I look at the world around me and it's a constant battle to not allow my heart to harden. But I do think that there are two takeaways from this story that have been helping me and they might help you too. I think great comfort can be found in these two things. One, expanding and rehearsing our grasp of God's story. I'll be honest, this, this spring, this story of Joseph has kind of wrecked me in a, in a really beautiful way. Um, I think that it was really just like, I would say like within the last six months, I feel like I have been studying the Bible wrong my entire life. I tend to come to the Bible and look at it like um, an instruction manual for life. Like, oh, I got this situation in my life. How does God want me to respond here? Or here's a list of how I think God wants me to behave in this situation, right? When I have a problem, I go to the scriptures to make sense. When I want to know how to honor God with my life, I head to the Bible to see how it is he wants me to behave. Is this wrong? I don't I, know. I mean, I don't think so. Is the Bible useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness? Yes. Is it full of wisdom? Absolutely. We can do all of these things and never fall in love with who our souls are aching to love and be loved by the most. One of the things this masterful story of Joseph has taught me is that God's chief aim for the Bible is not a list of do's and do nots. It's about him. It's one of the greatest ways that he has chosen to reveal himself to us. Look at this with me, okay? Take Joseph as an example. There are dozens of moral lessons that we can learn from Joseph. We may have learned it's not good to brag, right? We can learn how to not fall into temptation. 
It teaches us about the wisdom of planning years um, ahead in advance, in years of abundance um, for years where we find ourselves in need, right? There's lots of moral lessons in this story. I think God has so much more for us here if we take the time to expand and rehearse our grasp of God's story. This might be another way to look at Joseph's story. Joseph was the dearly loved and highly favored son. He was despised and rejected and suffered at the hands of his brothers. He was tempted and he proved to be faithful. He was the dearly loved son who took on the form of a servant. He was lowered down into a pit. Eventually, he was unjustly accused and cast into a deeper pit. When he was being held as a criminal, he had two other criminals as his companions, one who would be freed and live, and the other who would lose his life hanging on a tree. He was raised to the right hand of the Pharaoh to rule and reign. The one who was despised and rejected is now the brother's only hope to be saved and for the nation's continuance through the generations. This is not only a story about Joseph. It's the history of salvation. It's God working toward the incarnation of his son. And the Bible isn't just a book of moral lessons. It's primarily a glorious story displaying the person and the work of Jesus. It is like a beacon, like shining across all of the generations. God saying, look how much I love you. It's right here. Just read it. Here's how much. It's... I've been blown away just by this story of Joseph. We take hold of the Bible and expand and rehearse our grasp of his story. We will take hold of the lover of our souls. So I think we can find great comfort in expanding and rehearsing our grasp of God's story. But secondly, I think we need to choose to see ourselves as a player within God's story. And what do I mean by this? We can look back at Joseph after he's revealed himself to his brothers How in the world was he able to forgive these brothers? They're distraught to the point of not being able to speak, and if all Joseph ever focused on was the evil that they had conspired against him, I don't know if he could have forgiven them, but he draws them close. He wants them near. He wants reconciliation with his family. He doesn't want them to condemn themselves. How is that? Joseph understood there was so much more going on than what he could see. Joseph understood God was in control of his story and that God could be trusted for the outcome. He understood our lives aren't the point of it all. There's a much grander story going on here. He understood that when our story connects to God's story, it leads to a greater story. Rather than see ourselves as a victim of circumstance, we need to begin seeing ourselves as players within the story. Thank you for putting up with my... uh, real rough edges up here today. I'm so grateful that you guys have entrusted this time to me. I have truly loved studying um, the story of Joseph alongside all of you guys this spring. I do believe we can find great comfort and help for each day when we expand and rehearse our grasp of God's story and choose to see ourselves as a player within that story. He's in control of our stories. We can trust him for the outcome. Here's a few questions for you guys to um, talk about. One of the greatest things that we learn from Joseph is perspective is everything. So what kinds of things help you to change your perspective? Number two, do you believe that God's in control of your story? 
Do you think he's in control of all of it, good, bad, and ugly? And when you see your story playing out in a way that you would not have written, are you able to trust God for the outcome? And what kinds of things do you do to remind yourself that he's trustworthy? Thank you so much.